Welcome to Oops, All Monsters, a deadly, unserious show about creatures, cryptids, and curiosities curated by two weirdos from wild and wonderful West Virginia. That weirdo with me, when I can get the bees out of his mouth, is Gavin. <laughs> I'm Gavin with beads in my mouth. And then you. This is Hess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, um,. We're. I thought I lost you there for a second, and we are here too, as we always are. Delight and edify with tales of mysterious monsters from mythology, film, literature, TV, as well as gaming, both from uh, in the box and on the console and beyond. We each bring a monster into the shop, unknown to the other, and then present it and discuss it for the edification of you at home and each other. So um, uh, we're gonna we're changing format a little bit here on episode whatever this is episode five five esque four or five somewhere. So we're gonna change up format a little bit and kind of and see and, and try to do our uh, our vocabulary segment up at the front to give us a little bit of context for things we, that might show up in an episode or we're just going to we're going to push villainous vocab up to the front and see how we feel about it maybe we'll shift it back who who the, who the heck knows um did you did you have one you wanted to do today gavin or should i just do mine um i don't have one that i really wanted to do but i have one I'll do mine because it's um, it's it's relevant to my segment today. In one of the episodes, I ended up ta- referring to Freddy Krueger as a revenge tulpa, and tulpa is the word that I want to refer to. Tulpa. Um, T. Yeah, tulpa. T U L P P A. It's a proper noun. Um, and from Wikipedia, tulpa is a concept in mysticism and the paranormal of a being or object which is created through spiritual or mental powers. It was adapted by 20th century theosophists from Tibetan Spropa, and then there's some Tibetan nonsense there, which means emanation or manifestation. Modern practitioners use the term to refer to a type of willed imaginary friend, which practitioners consider to be sentient and relatively autonomous. So I guess there's like a Reddit-style community for people that have like super imaginary friend like tulpas, but that's not really what I'm talking about. Um, the, the the proliferation of this word within the mysticism context, interestingly, the, if for, for my in my reading, is how often they use it in last podcast on the left, frankly. Um, but it is particularly useful in referring to certain monsters that manifest as a symptom of fear or like public awareness or oral tradition or public mythology where some version of the creature the the creature basically doesn't exist if you don't think about it or worry about it or cause it to be by talking about it and um they discuss variously how freddy krueger is kind of a revenge tulpa that he he manifests as a uh, a symptom of the fear of the community, and you know it, it kind of has a how would you say it like a um, a uh, if you know if you don't if you believe in fairies clap to get Tinkerbell. Uh, off the floor and alive quality to it is yeah. believing that the thing is so makes it so um, is, is metaphysical kind of a, nourishment. 
Yes, right. That if you just if you created a vacuum for the thing and nobody talked about it and nobody believed it and nobody worried about it or whispered about it in 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 back rooms and hallways, then it, it would cease to exist. If you don't give it oxygen in yeah. that way, um, it will it will stop being entirely. So a tulpa <laughs> is it's a magical being that kind of feeds off of acknowledgement and and its own mythology. Um, it's kind of a fairy adjacent concept but you know the central thing is something manifesting because you've thought about it like maybe it, it wouldn't be there if if you didn't give attention to it which is a you know kind of a devilish concept and it's going to be relevant to my subject matter today my monster today is going to be um, certainly in that category in, in a way but uh, well, the ways that it is and is not we'll, we'll discuss does, does anything else come to mind in, relate, in relating, relating to tulpas for you, Gavin, before we move on? Uh, to the Just that the thing that I made up that I was scared of as a teenager were things called gekagex, and they fed off fear. And it was... Right. They were, yeah, yeah, they were certainly... <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it was... Uh, yeah, the gekag... Like, us tinkering with the gekagex was absolutely maybe the shortest possible circuit of... Uh, of Tulpa dumb in yeah. that like, like it, it was it was it was very much like do you think that thing is that thing and then you know and then your bra- yeah, your heightened teenage brain would manifest scaring the shit out of ourselves in the dark in the woods yeah, yeah meandering <laughs> around in the in the Pennsylvania fog at, at, at night uh, in the woods like one in the morning like, <laughs> yeah with like weird deer hunter sounds yeah. and um. And you know, you any sound or any any minor phenomenon you would whip into, okay, that's a gekagek kind of thing. And yeah. that tiny little closed loop of was there something? It was something. That it means was, there's something. It was also that genuinely th- dangerous because there were like boars and bears that could actually hurt us. <laughs> there were boars? Yes, I, there were I boars. Was, <laughs> I didn't really tell you guys that. <laughs> I Okay, we're gonna have to unpack that later because I was not prepared for boars. Um, in, I was not prepared for Green County boars ever. Yeah. Nor am I that prepared for that now. Uh, all right, well let's put that let's put that in the drawer for for the time being. Oh, and I should acknowledge if I sound if I sound very different today, it's because um, Casa de Hess is uh, having I'm having my some of my utilities repaired and in the repairing of the utilities uh, a guy was so nice to cut right through my fiber internet um, and so it's going to be a couple of days until I can have that repaired so I'm I'm at, I'm at Morgantown Art Party uh, which my friend Jill his, who I work on this place with is so kindly letting me use their internet and but it's a vast open cavernous space it so, used to be the BW3s um, <laughs> right, and uh, so if I if my audio quality is weird, if we have um, random uh, refrigeration units or heaters kicking on and off in on my side of the the audio today, I'm sorry. It's going to it's going to be weird audio for me. I got the same mic, um, but it's I'm just in a totally different space. So there's going to be no cats, but there might be some weird ambient noise. I anyway, I heard anything. Um, huge. I think you're good. Yeah. I don't know when it's like when it's in your head and you're you know doing whatever people do when they're pod, when they're listening to pods, um, yeah. you know people get really intense into how it sounds. 
it seems like you can hear everything when you're a listener. But anyway, they get tall. Let me get all. <laughs> get tall panicked. <laughs> um, it's tall panarchy. Uh, that's a that's probably a goof road that we should explore. But I don't know if I have the I don't know if I have the tall patience for it. <laughs> I got you with that one. You didn't see that one coming. Picture it, Gavin. It's 1992. All Apparently it is every single episode. Yeah. And uh, you're a blonde grad student at a fancy college on Chicago's north side. You study sociology or semiotics or some shit that nobody understands and has no postdoctoral career outside of academics. Oh, no. In a... In a desperate, do you already know what I'm doing? Go on. <laughs> in a, in a, if so, that would be the quickest picker upper, uh, picker upper that we've got so far. In a desperate bid to give your life and all these years a very expensive school some meaning, you decide to do some cultural and class tourism into the lives and myths of the poor black folks that live in the most famous project in all of Chicago. A series of mammoth rectangular buildings that are synonymous with the failed welfare state, drugs, crime, gang activity, and murder. Reports are that there are people with actual authentic oral traditions there, so much so that they spin tales of a magical man made out of bees that lives in their bathrooms. So you're on it like a Caucasian lady on a 12-pack of White Claw. So, spin some swizzle sticks through your tousled mop of Shirley Temple curls, or whatever the fuck you do to get it to look like Taya Leone in a shampoo, shampoo commercial, and, oh shit, no, you, you killed a nice black lady's baby. Oh shit, you killed a psychiatrist. Oh dang, you killed neoliberal intentions. Fuck, Helen, why won't you stop killing? Christ, you've killed your asshole boyfriend. What happened to your beautiful tousled mop? Fuck Helen! Um, well. So, by this point, I have no doubt that you have yeah. guessed that it is... The Cabrini Candyman. 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 I'm not going to say Candyman. <laughs> well... Um, even by the Candyman standards, you have to be looking into the mirror, so you'd probably be okay. But there's a um, mirror across a, from me. There, there as, is in fact as, as a blonde white person in a room full of random business, uh, if I am killed by Tony Todd in the next uh, two hours, it'll be my own damn fault. I don't think he's going to get you in the middle of the day in Morgantown. <laughs> it's a it's a long commute yeah. from Chicago or New Orleans or wherever Candyman is. Right and there's now. like so many college students on the way to you that he would stop and kill one of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I well we'll talk about this because it, it is very possible to say that the 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 thing that Helen did that made her the focus of Candyman's ire was that she was going to demystify him. Yeah. Um, that her, her, her primary sin that turned her into uh, his focus 
and we're going to have to get into what Candyman is here for people that have no idea what we're talking about, yeah. is that she was going to write a paper on him and expose him as a, as a legend. As drug dealers and were using his myth to keep people away. Yes, that's also yeah. certainly part of it. Um, but honestly, in my opinion, you know, that's, that's complicated what because, like, going to be about. yeah, she she could have. Honestly, I mean, you would you might think that that um, writing a paper about him and then then in a way that would boost his. It would be another set of stories about him, which is like his whole jam. I am the writing on the wall, the whisper in the classroom. Without these things, I am nothing. So now I must shed innocent blood. Yeah, you have a much better memory of <laughs> of things that you that you saw a long time ago than I have. I had not yeah. seen the Candyman since legitimately since like the 90s okay um, i saw it about two years ago it's um okay yeah it's scared the crap out of me um yeah mostly. well it's one of the main things about it it's scary as fuck yeah <laughs> like, i mean just it's a it's it's there there are things about it that maybe are not ideal but yeah. as a general note Candyman is fucking terrifying it is a very scary movie she looked in the mirror, and I don't know why, but she said his name the last time. Candyman. She turned out the lights. It's not like, it's not just a big guy with a hook hand coming after you. It's like no. a bunch of psychological torture also afflicting yes. you and like exacerbating your underlying problems constantly. Yes. <laughs> yes. And a lot of eyeball bee stings that I cannot abide. <laughs> no, yeah. The the like a lot like certain very good horror movie monsters um he the the Candyman character um he he ticks so he ticks some very strong boxes and and a lot of those boxes uh, and I'm going to hit this note a few times. Are the, are similar boxes to what Freddy Krueger does, and I would say that that's that's a good thing in the sense that scary scary Krueger, Freddy Krueger is scary <laughs> as fuck because of, because of those boxes that he ticks. He's a, he's a successful horror movie monster because of certain things, and a lot of those things are shared. Uh, by Tony Todd's depiction of the Candyman, and I should yeah. say that for the purposes of this discussion today, we're only gonna we're confining Candyman to Tony Todd's depiction in the 1992 film Candyman. I'm not I'm not roping in the sequels in New Orleans and other places. I'm just gonna yeah. talk about that movie for now. Otherwise, it's gonna unravel into a whole thing. Yeah. So we're just gonna talk about the Candyman, Can Candyman's depiction in the original film. Uh, from 1992, and Gavin, do you know that there's a new movie coming out? Are you yeah, aware of I, that? Yeah, I do. I found that out about six minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, it was going to be out in this previous summer, and then the world uh, exploded, and so yeah. instead it got pushed, and it's going to come out supposedly in August of uh, 2021, yeah. so we can look forward to that, and it is produ produced but not directed by Jordan Peele, 
So that makes me very excited because I, I love Jordan Peele. I think he's a genius. And yeah. uh, it, I think it, it means that it will probably be a really awesome thing. The trailers look really captivating and visually compelling. I think it'll be awesome. Um, people's immediate go-to in terms of concern about that is that it's not going to have Tony Todd. And unlike a lot of um, other movie monsters who are uh, obscured by a mask or a major makeup effect, um, you know, the, our, our sense of who... Uh, who Candyman is is totally based off of what Tony Todd looked like in the 90s. Um, it's, it's one and the same, you know? It's it's like trying to recast Rocky or something. It's just like, well, that's not the guy. Um, so there's a there's an, a limitation there, but we'll see how he handles it. I have faith that it'll be oh, really uh, interesting because Jordan Peele crushes. Wiki, Wikipedia says that Tony Todd will be in it. Yeah, I have... I'm... I'm curious. I mean, because the thing yeah. is, I've I have in the horror conventions that I ha, have gone to outside of Baltimore, that I'm a big fan of. Um, Tony Todd is like one of the top, like the top ten staples that is literally there every time, and kind of just like yeah. sipping, sipping like whiskey and chilling out, and <laughs> um, and. That dude, like, he's not so old that he would not be able to play that character. He would look different, yeah. but you also have a re—you also have a revamp of the whole movie itself. So, I mean, I'm—I'm I'm not saying that Tony Todd, Todd could not play the Candyman, but you know, it's a—it's com- a more complicated thing. It's—it's it's harder yeah. to do than Freddy or you know, particularly Jason. You can put anybody <clears throat> in there, quote unquote, anybody. Yeah, and then I and will then throw a mask always on. love and have like a massive amount of respect for any actor that was in Platoon. <laughs> oh shit! You well, yeah. I mean, I know that when they, huh? So he must be in the not Barnes, but he must be in the Willem Dafoe camp. Uh, uh, no, that's why with. you might not remember him. He was in um, the third squad that isn't really featured because it was like Bravo Squad and Alpha Squad kind of faces off against each other. There was a Charlie squad that's not really featured, and he was the sergeant of that. Huh. Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, welcome welcome to the uh, segment inside of a segment that Gavin always brings. Random military <laughs> trivia that, that Aaron would not have thought of. <laughs> that's yeah, that's awesome. I totally as many times as I've seen Platoon, I totally did not recall that. That's fantastic. Yeah. I want to get into what the fuck Candyman is, but also I don't want to like lose this like t- discussing Tony Todd thread yeah. because um, he is so synonymous in my opinion with if he was not him, the movie would not be the same if it was somebody else. That's what I'll definitively say is yeah. his embodiment of the Candyman uh, monster slash villain slash slash mythological character, he he does. It's not it's not like a makeup effect you could put on anybody with the bees and the the, the janked up torso and the bloody stump hook and the the cool ass coat. Like you couldn't just throw that on anybody. He, every part of him helps to embody what it is and. Uh, what it is to be the Candyman and why he's scary. He has a hook jammed in the bloody stump. And not the least of which, I cannot, I cannot fail to mention that his voice is yeah. uh, is such a central element to the film. 
Um, I mean, he gets he gets used in when he's on camera. For instance, they do the voice of God as opposed to indigenous microphone, meaning the you know the guy who's recording the onset um, the onset audio that you normally do in a dialogue scene. They're not using that when they when they do Candyman. If he if he's on screen or he's off screen, regardless if he's talking, he becomes um, they do him voice of God, meaning that they lay him down as a track on top of the production so it sounds like he's in your mind and everywhere all at once, which is a, a, a lot of times if you do if you do voice of God it totally, it's like breaking the fourth wall uh, in, an, in an audio fashion and it, it really <laughs> knocks on the, the, the viewer and says like, hey, by the way, here's an artificial thing that's happening and maybe buy out of the movie but everything is that's going on in the the scenes where Candyman shows up is so violently upsetting and yeah. and frustrating and well articulated to once you get to that point you're at such a level of anxiety that his um, his voice of God and the, the quality of Tony Todd's vocal performance, either when he's on screen or when he's just, um, cons- you know, when he's just audio, is something that really makes the character. Visually, he has a lot going on for him as well to embody that character, but just how he sounds is, in my opinion, the, the ultimate aspect that really, like, makes the character not just some guy playing this scary thing on script with a bunch yeah. of bees, but um, the way he sounds really, like, sells the whole thing. Be my victim. Be my victim. You know, I yeah. not to <laughs> knock the kinds of things that they give him to say, either, some of which are directly ported over from the um, the original story by Clive Barker. So I guess I'll use this as a segue to transition from talking about talking about Tony Todd and get into what the fuck is Candyman, because certainly we must have some lip- listeners that are going like, uh, Hess and Gavin, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> so it's a, it's a 1992 horror film from a guy named Bernard Rose, who was the screenwriter um, and director. A guy who I can't say has done like a whole bunch of stuff that you know. He directed like Immortal Beloved with um, Dracula, with Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman. Um, <laughs> yeah, with Gary Oldman. He's such and a good actor. I forgot who say he what? was. He's such a good actor, I forgot who he really was. <laughs> he's, he's, he's such a good actor, I forgot who that Dracula guy was. Um, but not a ton of other stuff, uh, but I will give him credit. I think, it's a, I think it's a fairly good movie, even within the limit, the, you know, some of the structural limitations about it, or, um, I don't know, if, it, it's easy in 2021 to hit on it from being exclusively from uh, a white lens and and the film being kind of a white gaze film that is it is it's reifying the the poverty tourism of of white people at the time in the early 90s I think that there are enough you know I'm not the person that can say whether that is 
correct or right. You'd have to ask people that are like probably not a blonde white guy whether ultimately that spoils the film or not. But I think that there are <laughs> enough, at least from my personal opinion, enough great things about the film that that's why it has maintained um, power and cultural relevance over time. Um, but what is Candyman? It's a it's a it's a very upsetting horror movie. And follows uh, this woman named Helen, which is the same as in the original story by Clive Barker. It's a short story. And she is writing a paper. But the thing is, in, in, in um, Clive Barker's original story, it is not seen through a, in a racial lens. Uh, Clive Barker doesn't really talk about the race of anybody in his original story, which is, yeah. I think, why it puts us in a position of default white gaze nonsense and orients us in a specific way when they transition into making it into a film script. Um, It's the fact that he didn't address it and then they layered this, they placed this kind of like mantle of, well, this is all about um, white intrusion on black space um, conceptually down onto it because presumably in the original Clyde Barker story, basically everybody was white. It was just white people that lived in a tenement versus uh, a grad student who was ostensibly better off than those people. You know, Anne-Marie in the, in the, in the story is, is described as having blonde hair. You know, there is, there is not this um, duality between the white culture and the black culture and Helen being um, a tourist who causes everybody's suffering by tinkering in their affairs. That's just... That is a layer that's created for the movie, not the original story. Helen, I came for you. So, t- getting us up to speed, Helen is like a grad student with a, with a douchebag professor boyfriend that she lives with in, in Chicago, and she's already on this, like, oral tradition, sociology, yada yada, like, paper track, and when she's kind of stumbles upon these people telling these stories, uh, this character, the Candyman, who they ascribe to being responsible for um, various violent murders in the um, Cabrini Green uh, projects, which was um, an extremely famous tenement housing project during the 90s that went into a state of serious, serious... Uh, disrepair and malevolence during that era, even though that 10 or 15 or 20 years earlier, it was also the setting for the sitcom Good Times. So, and and and, and that that comparison and juxtaposition, I'm stealing from a he's a he's a YouTuber called Cold Crash Pictures. I don't know his actual name, but he does really good um, kind of literary style analysis. Um, theory style analysis of various things and he does a really good one on Candyman. The point is I'm going to be referring to um, elements that are inside of his review on YouTube so if you want to check it out I highly recommend seeing him. It's got like almost a million views his his um, um, discussion of Candyman. It's called Candyman Breaking All the Rules of Horror and again that's cold crash pictures so that his analysis of it really like pushed me into um, looking at the movie again and, and, and figuring out why it's so interesting. But he's the one that makes the amusing juxtaposition that not only is, is Cabrini Green in Chicago the setting for Candyman, it's also the setting for uh, Good Times. Which is so, yeah. so, obviously, <laughs> so obviously Cabrini Green was not always this 
miserable, derelict, gang-infested um, symbol of, of of systematic failure in Chicago and in the inner city. It, it was a a project that actually worked pretty well for a while, but thanks to apathy and disinterest and, and not keeping it up by the entities that had originally created the product, pro, the projects, just kind of like setting it and forgetting it and not repairing anything and not making sure apartments get filled and the kind of the, the basic upkeep stuff that a, a landlord would do. Um, places became empty. It got, it, it went into disrepair and they were, it, and also because of the way it was, it fit into the bureaucracy of uh, Chicago and the state, you were motivated to be poor and unwed to be there because it meant you got more money per unit. So two thirds of the people that lived there were children during this period. And it was mostly single mothers. There were just all sorts of structural things that made it, um, kind of be destined to fail. So it is the setting for this story. And Helen, a blonde grad student played by Virginia Madsen, who kind of looks like a mix between um, <laughs> Agent Starling and Gillian Anderson, um, with like curly, curly blonde hair, um, goes in and with her with her black friend and is like taking photos and doing ad hoc interviews to to fill in her grad paper, her grad thesis, to really break some ground and and get noticed and blah 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 academia and she overall just gives the impression of somebody that's a little bit tone deaf and kind of a, a pushy white tourist and before long a series of very upsetting and confusing things happen her re- she's she's starting you know she's investigating real murders and violent ev- events that have occurred that um, people that live in the in the area are ascribing to this character, the Candyman, that supposedly, if you say his name in the mirror five times, he'll show up and kill you. Um, <laughs> it's a you know, it's a modern it's a modern boogeyman type setup, you know. And um, the thing is, uh, eventually, um, she gets into some confusing interactions with different individuals that are interviewed about whether this is true or whether this is a bunch of malarkey and just some oral history and people that are very superstitious or whatever you want to say. And then some, some real whammo blammo stuff starts happening. Um, she is taking photos and digging around in this weird empty space that you have to crawl in, into. And then when you crawl through it, the other side is a mural of this massive black man's face. It's like a gaping maw. That was the hole that you walk through. Like he's either screaming or you, or he's swallowing you as you enter. And you know, there's drug paraphernalia around. There's graffiti everywhere. There's literally candy with razor blades left on the floor. Um, yeah. So this 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 um, white tourist vibe gets kind of up to a a pinnacle, and then she gets confronted by an actual gang of thugs that that roam Cabrini Green, and they rough her up for being such a nosy bitch. And then immediately um, after sh- after she's injured, it, it cuts to. Um, that guy in a lineup and he's busted and he's going to be in jail for messing up this white lady. Um, but this guy has <laughs> been putting on the, he's kind of a sheep in wolf's clothing kind of thing where he's been taking on the, the um, garments, so to speak, 
uh, the symbology, the symbolism of <laughs> Candyman in order to augment his badass status. He's not real. He's just some. He's just some scaryish guy with a with a hook that he carries around and a and a leather jacket. Um, so that kind of deflates the tension in the movie, and then before too long. Um, she has this surprise interaction in broad daylight in a parking lot where this character shows up and it's Tony Todd as this mysterious figure, as the Candyman, um, who speaks in this overpowering voice of God narration. And he sa- and the stuff he says, and some of it is um, pulled directly from Clive Barker's original story, um, and some of it is kind of uh, augmented versions of that that was put in by Bernard Rose. But he says, you know, he's, 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 um, he's just not the villain that you're expecting on various levels. One, he shows, up in, he shows up in broad daylight. Two, he's wearing like a fancy, maybe like 19th century coat, polished shoes. I mean, he looks like he could be in the 70s or the 80s and 90s as kind of a tall black guy in the hood, but there's kind of an air about him. And like, I don't know, Tony Todd has this kind of inherent, aloof kind of coolness to him when he's on screen that is very captivating. He's somehow both like sensual and aloof. He's really strong on screen. And as soon as he shows up, you're like, what the fuck is this? This is different. And then he's got the hook for a hand and Um, he's able to do confusing things and kind of like put you in a trance and all of a sudden um, Helen's shit gets all fucked up and a series of very confusing episodes occur where Helen has has trouble with basically falling down a staircase of of what is and is not reality um, in a a more and more upsetting series of events where uh, Candyman Candyman is probably real because all these things keep happening um, the one of the his her primary subjects that he's he's interviewed all of a sudden after one of these um, con, contacts with uh, Candyman she wakes up in this woman's apartment and her her child is gone and there's blood everywhere and Helen it looks like Helen's been in a fugue state and did she kill the baby and where did all this blood come from and then she gets into an altercation with the with the mother because it's just so disorienting and the, you know the cops show up and Helen's got a butcher knife and has just cut the cut the woman it's not a good look and then it kind of continues down this devolving series of events that make it that where Helen gets put into an asylum her understanding douchebag academic boyfriend Trevor is like oh my god Helen and then you know he's kind of with her but we know we know he's banging the the other grad student on the side and we know he's an asshole and that's not going to work out so anyway um ultimately Helen like Helen like breaks out of the of the asylum and and goes back to Cabrini Green because she's been telepathically uh, communicating with the Candyman, who is able to inject uh, th- these dream sequences into your mind and communicate with you. And he's got some kind of like power over her. Um, we at the at the asylum we find out that. 
Candyman has to be real because he fucking murders her psych- psychiatrist in this savage fashion. Like, right, you know, you're like in this really sober scene where she's she's basically she's practically in a straitjacket. She's you know, it's a it's got very like um, Sarah Connor Terminator 2 vibes. You know what I mean? Like yeah. where, where she's stuck there is explaining her half of the story, which sounds totally gonzo to this guy in a goddamn turtleneck and a tweed jacket. And he's like, yeah, 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 well. And he's showing her, like, on camera having a fit when she first got admitted that, you know, he's here, he's in the room, he's under the table. And she's, like, ripping at her restraints. And there's nobody there. There's just people come in and give her Thorazine. So she's obviously crazy. And he's like, well, if he's real, why don't you just summon him now? So she, like, turns to the left and looks in the, looks in the, looks in the mirror um, and by the way, spoilers, 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 spoilers. If you've not seen this movie, you should re- you really need to go see it because it's excellent. And she looks in the mirror and she says Candyman five times and he's like unimpressed. And then a, a couple of beats go by and bam, he starts gushing blood out of his mouth. And Tony Todd yeah. stands up behind him having just impaled him on this fucking hook. You're like, yeah. oh, damn. Um, and that's yeah. one of the many ways in which the Candyman character is just wildly confusing and upsetting that he is able to alter reality and insert himself into reality in a way that is very similar to Freddy Krueger, that there are certain rules that are that govern his entrance into your reality, but as long as the standards <laughs> of those rules are met, he can just fucking show up and wreck anything. Um, and and he does. Like, he, th- this is not a Jason... You know, Tony Todd does not play Candyman as this Jason monster that's, a, that's running amok in our physical yeah. space. He only kills, like, two people on screen in the whole movie. A lot yeah. of it is instead just, like, long, you know, long poles of tension that are trying to determine what's going on with Helen and what's going on with these stories. But ultimately, he's, he's, he's very scary. He shows up when you don't expect him to show up. He kind of jumps in and out of reality the way that, that Freddy Krueger does, and, and, and that, that the doubt that's created from that of, is he real? Can I avoid him? Is he inevitable? Um, the 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 visual aspects of him that are very upsetting the like the bees coming out of the mouth and the the torn apart desiccated rib cage and the origin story that and this is you know I can't miss this that you know one of the uh, one of the academic douchebags this this foppish character named Archie who basically gives all of the origin exposition for Candyman in the middle the middle of the film gives gives this origin story that it does not live inside of the uh, Clive Barker short story um, talks about him being um, a, a black man in the 1900s who have, was extremely adept at being a painter so he, he rose to working with uh, for the the Victorian upper class and doing these beautiful portraits and he was a successful guy and then he gets into um he gets in, into a relationship with this white daughter of this very powerful character, and the, the, the powerful character gets upset and, and sinks, a, sinks a lynch mob on him that uh, cuts off his hand and jams a hook into the stump instead and slathers him with honey from all of these bees, and then the bees like sting him to death. It's just a night, <laughs> absolutely, just total fucking nightmare origin story. And yeah. the, this this miserable hatred 
um, this like um, you know, white violent vengeance, you know, vengeance based off of nothing, is is creates this kind of malevolence, this this character that can exist out of time and space. This kind of, uh, as we talked about at the beginning, this vengeance tulpa that works very similarly to, again, Freddy Krueger. Because what is Freddy Krueger? He's a vengeance tulpa. He is created in a, in a, in a bizarre way because he's a malevolent guy, but his malevolence is galvanized into a new form by the, the parents of the neighborhood that, um, that set him on fire and, and uh, essentially kill him. You know, it's not, qu- it's not quite in the, the exact category of a, a lynching of an African-American dude, but it's, there's so much similarity where the, the community on some level comes and destroys this guy um, in in Candyman's case, for not having really done anything of any note or merit other than break the the, the interracial taboos of the time period, um, but that act of him being of each of these characters being killed by mob violence turns them into another entity altogether that can exist in an alternate reality and and come back again and again. So. And things that they have in common this is being created by mob violence um, that they they haunt uh, and kill in their own communities. Oddly, and, and you know what significance this has, you know this you can read into. But Candyman haunts and kills people up and up until Helen is introduced in his own community. He's a boogeyman of the um, of the black folks of Cabrini Green. He's not he's not haunting the. The black, the white people that lynched him a hundred years ago, you know, he's and and that difference is is noteworthy and what you can do with that, you know, that is maybe for another discussion. But both of them um, hunt and kill in their own communities. In Freddie's case, it it obviously makes sense because those are literally the families that hunted him down and killed him. Um, yeah. They both got scary, weird razor devices for hands. Um, yeah. Coincidence? It's I don't know, but it's something. Yes. <laughs> and they both they both they both symbolize um, characters that were destroyed for breaking social taboos. It's interesting that the white guy, Freddy Krueger, he gets hunted down because he's literally a child murderer, whereas the black guy gets hunted down and killed just because he's kind of yeah. like starts a relationship with a white lady. So yeah, yeah. double standard. Yes. Um, and they're both uh, they're both destroyed and recreated by white violence. And they both appear as str- in strange, mysterious reality-bending methods that make you anxious about. You know, it's it's not like it's not like Jason, where you get away from Camp Crystal Lake and you don't have to worry about it anymore. It's not like it's not like the alien. You can get out of the ship and not worry about it anymore. You know, it, it is. They could be anywhere at any time, given that you meet the criteria of what causes them to be. Because because Jordan Peele is. Um, is uh, producing this new 2021 version. Uh, he's obviously been interviewed about it, and so a couple of quotes from uh, a couple of quotes from him. And this was I got this from Sci-Fi Wire. Is Jordan Peele says, "I think the reason I love the original Candyman is, for better or worse, it broke us, you know, meaning black folks, out of the box." Um, a, a black monster was pretty revolutionary. If there was no Candyman, I don't know there would be a get out, end quote, which, you know, that's fairly strong. Um, yeah. Of course, he's motivated to make it sound like a big deal because he's got a new project about it, but, you know, I tend, I tend to take his word for it. Um, and 
it's hard to even now with another 20 years or longer gone by since then we still don't have this whole like long laundry list of like black represented monsters it's not like it's populated with a whole bunch of characters since then um, and it was so revolutionary at the time that Bernard Rose and his team actually like met up with the NAACP to kind of like get their opinion off this if this was like a kosher thing to do to have like a black monster and they were like um, yeah I don't know why we're having this meeting like sh- yeah sure like you guys yeah. have every monster <laughs> yeah. just make a mo- black pe- black people should just be allowed to be all the stuff so sure monster too yeah. so check. You know, check that box, whatever, no big deal. And they were like, oh, okay. And then subsequently made what is almost certainly the most culturally significant black monster. Um, and uh, so an, I, I want to, I'll say another, uh, uh, it, and it's not a, it's not an uncomplicated relationship because like everything made in the early nineties and particular, you know, it was, Almost, it was handled through the lens of the the white director and screenwriter who told the story through a point of view character who was a blonde woman who was doing cultural tourism. So there, you know, there are less than ideal things about it, but I I don't think that they I think that they're very strongly overridden by how strong and scary of a movie it is, and that there there actually is a lot of subtlety and complexity because honestly watching the film and this may be with 2021 vision but watch watching the film i have a lot more empathy for the 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 black characters who are having to suffer the slings and arrows of all of this shit that's being brought because of the 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 actions of helen than i am helen like helen is the is the central character and the hero, but she kind of just gets tossed down a, like a set of stairs yeah. um, in terms of all this random shit happening and the focus being put on her and her possible significance as being um, an, an allegory character to the, the original white lady and the original Candyman story and allusions to that and if she's like like magically important or not or whether she's just some chick that messed around in the wrong thing and <laughs> Candyman did not want her to demystify his story. Whichever way you take it, uh, I mean, there is so much time and emotionality given to how white curiosity ends up in 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 the deaths and maiming and and suffering of all of the black people in the movie like El- helen can can be rude and then or you know or not have the right perspective and then the result is a bunch of people are kidnapped or dead <laughs> and i think that that like that mechanism holds up over time as as accurately criticizing white neoliberal bullshit that sometimes your good intentions can ripple out into terrible effects that everybody else actually has to deal with. But let me get to um, another Jordan Peele quote, which is, uh, how do I tell a story with a black villain in a world that that has exhausted the villainization of black people? And yet, this is a piece of representation I crave as a horror fan. And in the past, when we were made monster, it was a monster without empathy. For this monster, Tony Todd built a character that was a force and had a charisma and gave me a sense of power as opposed to a feeling of otherness. And I think that is an extremely um, 
intelligent and accurate description of what is going on with the with the Tony Todd Candyman character is that it's 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 not simple. It's a it's an erudite character who's um, upper class and commanding and sensual and complex. And he's not, he's not any stereotype that we already have baked in. He doesn't fit into an obvious mold. It's created this new category of thing that I have not seen replicated since. He's totally its own standard. Uh, his, I'll, I'll go with one more quote from him before I get into more amusing stuff. It's, he says, I think the story deserves another look because there's a lot we've learned since the original came out. It's very tricky to bring the black experience into horror in new ways. There's a piece of the puzzle here that is to view this spectacle from the other side of the mirror that is the black perspective. So I think that, and if you look, if you watch the trailer, you can kind of get a sense that this is a, this is a, a black lens movie that just everybody in the damn movie is black. And there is not some, there is not a, um, you know, an, an agent starling who is meandering yeah. and navigating us for the 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 white gaze uh, into to understanding it from quote unquote our perspective. It is a it is a um, it is a black folks movie made by black folks for black folks using tools in their own you know symbolism toolkit, and that's awesome. I you know I'm 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 thrilled to see it. Um, some some random business related to the movie. So apparently, supposedly, according to IMDb, Tony Todd negotiated a bonus of $1,000 for every bee sting he suffered during filming, and he was reported to have suffered either 23 or 26 uh, of those $1,000 bee stings, which... Um, <laughs> Good, good, good for him. Because if you showed me that script and you know, Mike, I'm covered in bees. Yeah. And you get me on set. You get me on set in miserable set conditions, and I'm going to be covered in hundreds and hundreds of these fucking bees, and they're going to be in my damn mouth. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm gonna. I'm gonna get a bone. I'm gonna get some hazard pay. Um, yeah. uh, an, another another piece of trivia is while investigating one of Candyman's crime scenes, Helen and Bernadette discover that the design of uh, the apartment's medicine cabinet made it possible a possible point of entry for an intruder. This was not a made-up piece of horror movie fiction. While researching the film, Rose, the director, learned that a series of murders had been committed in Chicago in this very way. I don't know. What do you what 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 do you remember or think or what comes to mind for you, Gavin? Uh, that empty apartment was really scary. It it had mm. like um, standard graffiti of just like names and tags. Like, ju- mm-hmm. ju- which are just like letters and everything, and then suddenly on one specific wall, it just warps into this um, complete artistic change f- into this yeah. like face mural that like presents a doorway through the mouth and um, does yes. not match at all with the rest of the graffiti. <laughs> yes. Like that, and, and the aesthetic of that alone scared me. Like, well, that's different. Oh yeah, because that's not supposed yeah. to be there. It's... Yeah, and that aspect was something that was in the original Clive Barker story. Um, it's very, very. There are certain elements in the story that are very accurately depicted in the film, and that's one of them. Um, yeah. That the Candyman character what had this, and it, and it was a full door in the story, like. The mouth was a door, whereas in the in the film, it's kind of a um, 
a craggy, cavernous hole in the the plaster and cement that that Helen has to crawl through in her her various trips into the the Candyman lair. Yeah. But it is you know using graffiti to that is still scary in 2021 when we're not like naive white people that are worried about um super predators in the inner city oh yeah maybe some people are but like in you know people who didn't live through 1992 forget that when you're dealing with this like apex of the the crack epidemic and the 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 crime wave that the Clintons were so terrified about, and yeah. you know there there was this idea that violence in the inner city was was just spiraling into this this whirlwind that was going to consume all of America. Yeah, and that's the huge, context. Of terrible which, misconception from being isolated from the inner city. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, it was and, it was a complete fabrication. <laughs> yeah, it, it ended up being like Mad Max. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it ended up being total bullshit, but the, yeah. but that those are that those news headlines that's the context that you have to remember this film from. Like the like you yeah. were, you know, it it was like right at the the juncture where people were most afraid of these concepts. It, it's so easy to look at it now from the distance of, oh, well, luckily that's going to like resolve a lot of that. <laughs> I mean, it's not yeah. like we don't have like inner city violence anymore, but it's it, there. The idea that, you know, I mean, it really has turned into something totally manageable compared to the track that it was on in the early 90s and the track that it was on for the, the contexts of, you know, communicating this story. Like the idea that that it was going to be come under control was completely foreign to the white newspaper reading audience of 1992. You know what I mean? It was it was a it was a real frightening thing that 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 they thought was just going to was a cancer that was going to ruin civilization. Yeah. And they they did um they did like unfairly rope in graffiti into that like like uh, portraying yeah, graffiti right. as like the the forefront to this storm of crime that's going to come, when graffiti well, hadn't it, it changed is, at all from like the '80s, where it was just like competing artists seeing who could be the best acrobat. Like, <laughs> yes, well, and gra- graffiti gets looped into the um, extremely dangerous and unfortunate broken windows philosophy and policy that comes out during this era of yeah. well if you could just if you could just get people to if you could just get people to stop doing the tiny little things yeah. um, then we wouldn't have rapes and murders uh, which then becomes the 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 it's the little sibling that turns into the big scary sibling of stop and frisk and all, all sorts of miserable yeah. shit that we're still living with today. When I when I lived in cities though, like um, I spent a lot of times. By the way, for people who don't know me, which would be everybody, um, I've spent a lot of time on yep. the streets of cities, and I can say for certain that the that most of the graffiti. And and graffiti artists, like probably ninety nine percent of them, are not gangbangers in any sort of way. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean gra- graffiti is a it's a hobby. Yeah. Um, and uh, hobbies tend to be taken up by people of all sorts of different backgrounds. Uh, yeah. That sometimes have certain 
areas where they overlap, but a lot of times they're just you. You never know. Yeah, um, but like to, in, but yeah, in yeah, graffiti's dir- it's just a hobby, like, like uh, almost anything else. Yeah, in, in direct uh, contradiction to what the '90s thought graffiti was, I just wanted to say that because there's a yeah. lot of graffiti in Candyman. <laughs> Like yes, the, I mean the entire movie it is, is just it is plastic. it is a cent it is a central aspect to understanding both the '92 film and yeah. to understanding the original Clive Barker um, story, which is interesting because Clive Barker's is is not um, is not a story uh, specifically about like urban black identity, and and the fact that it's so central to both because. I mean, and that's something that Candyman says. One of the things in 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 some of his rants, he literally says, "You know, this is a quote from Candyman. I am the writing on the wall, the whisper in the classroom. Without these things, I am nothing. (laughs) So now I must shed innocent blood. Come with me. So the the graffiti in a in in a very literal way is the manifestation of his reality. It 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 is it creates him." It is what he is because he is—he's conceptual. He's Tinkerbell. If you stop believing him, he doesn't exist. And that—that yeah. that central concept means that the graffiti isn't a symptom of him. It is—it is—it is him. In fact, the "Sweets for the Sweet" quote yes. that is written on the walls Sweets for my from sweet. Shakespeare. Uh, it is. Um, it is it is what creates him. It is what he is. It is not tangential to his being. It is central, and I'm sure I have no doubt that Jordan Peele and uh, and company will um, integrate that into the, the the protagonist of their their new story is going to be a painter. Yeah, um, and the the use of the use of symbolism and the use of mark making, trans, and the juxtaposition of fine art versus uh, versus, you know, brutal art and folk art and graffiti is going to be a topic that is integrated into the film in a very complex way. I, is my is my hypothesis. I'm here to be proven wrong, but that's where I'm putting my chips down. I was going to say that Tony Todd also played an iconic and possibly revolutionary black character. He carried on um, the role of the black character as Ben from Night of the Living Dead. Thank you very much for reminding me because yeah. that was on my it was on my bullet list, but I was think I was going to somehow miss it. Yeah. Um, as uh, as as fans of the show will quickly find out, we're the show, the show are is massive uh, is a we're big Night of the Living Dead fans. Yeah, um, and the. So if you're not familiar, there's the original George Romero Night of the Living Dead, and then yeah. there's a remake by Tom Savini, I want to say in 94? That's what I'm off the top of the dome, I'm going to say 94, maybe oh, 93. I, I just looked at it. It's 90. It's 90? Yeah, it's 90. So so he does that before he, he does Candyman. Yeah, he did that before Candyman. Weird. Um <laughs> yeah. because Okay, I'm glad that we brought that up because here's the thing. I actually, as much as I like Tony Todd in um, in Candyman, I have to say that I do not think he is 
the best casting in the remake in Tom Savini's Night of the Living Dead from 1990. Oh, um, <laughs> I I don't I it's I can't go so much to say to say that I dislike him, but there is something there is some quality to the original Night of the Living Dead, um, where the portrayal by Dwayne Jones is the name I was looking for. Dwayne Jones' portrayal of Ben in the original Night of the Living Dead is, in my opinion, the fulcrum on which the entire film functions. That if Dwayne Jones does not depict Ben, the movie doesn't work. In the same way that... um, if you don't have Sidney Poitier playing the, the main character in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, the movie doesn't work because there is a there is a the the there's a, an ability to thread the needle through the camel's eye in both cases of these the only. Uh, black guy in 1968 that could slap a black uh, slap a blonde lady into back into her senses in the first yeah. 20 minutes of the movie and not get psychologically canceled by everybody watching the film from yeah. then on. Like yeah. he is, he is, he embodies so many aspects of what you need him to embody. And there, that has good implications and bad implications. You know, he's handsome, he's tall, he's, he's erudite, he's, in a, he's got a nice suit on. He's, and, but I'll, I'll tell you this, if you isolate the audio or just the segment of when Ben first shows up to the farmhouse in Night of the Living Dead as portrayed by Dwayne Jones, and he explains what has happened to him at, at the, and this is right at the, the conceptual beginning of figuring out what zombies in the Romeroverse are. I looked back at the diner to see if, if there was anyone there who could help me. It was when I noticed that the entire place had been encircled. There wasn't a sign of light left except By now, there were no more screams. I realized that I was alone with 50 or 60 of those things just standing there, staring at me. Where, if you just take that section out of context where he's driving and then he gets attacked by these random people and they're, you know, they're like, pushing his car over and he has to he have to he has to run away and this is where he gets to if you take that out of a zombie movie that is a believable story of a black guy in the south who just had a yeah. really fucking bad day yeah and the 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 power of taking that guy and making him the unqualifiable hero of that movie because Barbara is practically useless. Yeah. Her brother gets zombified right at the beginning. Yeah. All of the all of the um, all of the the family downstairs are are they're not central characters. Ben is the hero of that movie right up until the very end when he gets spoiler alert um, quote unquote confused for a zombie and yeah. and destroyed and his. 
uh, his journey in that film is the point of the film. The zombies yeah. are not the point. Barbara is not the point. Yeah. The, the white rednecks with the guns and the mob are not the point. Ben is the point. And in my opinion, almost the, almost everything in the re, the 1990 remake of the Tom Savini version is is quite good. But yeah. one of its one of its choices is to kind of um, Sigourney Weaver Ripley up the Barber character, who yeah. is now kind of a uh, a short haired, skinny ginger badass. Yeah, and turn her into the protagonist, which in and of itself is. Um, isn't bad, but by queening her pawn into a queen, it it inherently devalues the role of the Ben character yeah. and makes it not about a character, and of course this is the 90s, so the relevance of this is vastly different, not um, um, the, first, the first great black hero in a white movie, but instead... Uh, the the second the second character up, you know, he's the second lead at best. Yeah, and there's that structural change, but also Tony Todd in playing kind of a helpful, decisive action hero. He kind of gives off ver- he gives off flavors of just impatient and frustrated yeah. and and kind of like. And these are not things that this character shouldn't be in a real-world context. I mean, the situation is fucking fucked up. But there is this this needle that's threaded by Dwayne Jones in the original where there is no way, even if you're some, like, total racist jackass in 1969 in, in nowhere the fuck Georgia, that you cannot end up, through the power of filmmaking, rooting for Ben as Dwayne Jones in the original Night of the Living Dead. Because yeah. it, it so affects casts him as the hero and it has been proven that if you if you you can make anybody basically the hero of a movie if you're a good enough filmmaker and as alien as that person is to you you can make them a serial killer you can make them uh, a baby raper you can make them trying to get it with away with any kind of monstrosity that normally you would not be able to empathize with them but if they're the person that you're following through the journey of the film yeah that you through the power of filmmaking and human empathy, just start rooting for them. You start hoping that they will be able to hide the body before the sheriff shows up or whatever miserable thing that they're getting away with. You will still root for them. And on a, on a, on a different level, the great magic trick of the original Night of the Living Dead was that it made massive and massive and massive amounts of money were in its original format and its original format was a 35 millimeter film that was played in drive-ins and drive-ins that were played as everybody can tell you that knows anything about drive-ins in the goddamn south and the midwest from 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 you know uh sacramento to to Florida, from you know New York, from New York State to nowhere Ohio, the the, the drive it was, it was full of hayseed jagoffs that would have, under any other circumstances, not given a flying flip about this um, black guy in a black suit um, being eaten by zombies, except for the movie that was built up around him, 
And it managed to become the most profitable and popular movie, and it ran for fucking decades in that format. And you have to know that it, it, overall it had this massive effect by m- m- just not giving you an option to not root for this, this guy who was so likable and clearly the only person who could be trusted to like handle the damn situation. He was the only re- re- yeah. responsible person in the whole movie. Um, and it was not a movie that made everybody cartoonishly inept. You know, the, the people felt like real people. They reacted to uh, this incredibly ungrounded, bizarre situation in a very grounded, realistic way. Like, the Coopers were defensive and, 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 and scared and apprehensive and didn't want to be involved. They kind of had, you know, for lack of a better term, like an America first mentality yeah. about if we, stay in, if we stay in the basement and wait for everything to blow over, it'll be fine. We'll which, ironically, actually kind of ended up probably being true, even though the Coopers were, yeah. you know, Mr. Cooper was kind of <laughs> yeah. the, the bad guy. Um, yeah. I don't, I'm going to talk my voice off, but I don't know if I have energy to, talk, to do my Mr. Cooper. It's not going to make it into the show this time. My Mr. Cooper <laughs> anecdote that I've, I've probably told you. Do you know this story that no. I've told you about Mr. Cooper? No, let's hear it. I'm, uh, oh my God. All right, hold on. I'm, I need a, I have no liquid in my mouth at all. <laughs> you can do it, yeah. So yeah, one of these, uh, So a million years ago, um, back in the dark times before the empire, um, when I, (laughs) I went to this, uh, the convention that I used to go to the horror convention, it was one, you know, they always have a theme, like it'll be an evil dead reunion or a night of the living dead reunion or a Texas chainsaw reunion or what have you. Right. Yeah. So they'll, they'll get a bunch of people from that franchise. And this year there was a, it was a of the dead year and, um, I think it was a year that Romero was there, but if Romero wasn't there, they've done the, uh, the of the dead the, like theme a couple of times. But um, I was uh, I'd been it was like Friday night. I'm sure I was I'm sure I was drinking or whatever, and I was got in the elevator to go this way or that way, and in the hotel, and the ho- everything's happening in the hotel, and I get on the elevator with like three other people, and we take the hotel elevator down to what looks like when you press the button the main floor. But it's one of those confusing elevators where it's like, oh, no, that's actually, like, the basement. And then so me and, like, one other old guy get off and are, like, walking down the hallway. And we get about 20 steps before we see all these. It's just only employees with, like, silver dishes and stuff. And we're, like, we both silently turn around and we're, like, oh, yeah, we fucked that up. We got to go back to the the elevator. And me and this old guy get back in the elevator. And I'm kind of looking at him. I'm, like, I don't remember. I think I kind of, who is this guy? I think I know who this guy is. And, um... And I said, excuse me, are you Mr. Cooper? <laughs> and he goes, yeah, actually, as a matter of fact, I am. Yeah. And, see, and, then, and, then, and then there's just like a beat, and we're like silently going up, back up to the right floor in the elevator. And he says, you know, probably be safer if we stay down in the basement. Yeah. Just like in the, mo- <laughs> just yeah. like in the movie. <laughs> and, I, and, and I was just like, like he was, I was just, I, I was just digesting the fact that it was it was Mr. Cooper who I had earlier that day had like signed my Night of the Living Dead poster, and yeah. then he hit me with a like we should have stayed down in the basement whammy, and I I will I will never forget it. It was so so amusing to me. That's awesome. Anyway, yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and their actual name, well, like, was Cooper, so it's like even weirder. Like the the Coopers played the Coopers, and they were an actual family of Coopers. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. don't worry about it. <laughs> it's, it's very weird. <laughs> um, 
So uh, I, I I like Tony Todd. I f- I feel that he just whatever. I, I mean, you, I can I would I think there is a counter argument that his depiction of Ben in the in the Savini remake has. Yeah. Well, um, he also wasn't like scared. Accessible aspects to it that like have validity, but for some reason it just doesn't it doesn't click in for me, and it, it's always been something that's bothered me about the movie. Yeah, yeah. There's he he the the depict because like Ben in the Dwayne Jones version of Ben, um, and it's I'm so sad that Dwayne Jones died way earlier than everybody else because you know like my poster is signed by literally everybody but him, but he died like way early, unfortunately, yeah. and um, and he was a really fucking strong actor and (laughs) the the, yeah it's 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 almost as if the some of the characters in the tom savini version you're like to your point don't just don't react appropriately to what's going on Um, i mean there's a there's a much more 90s like ah fuck like kind of like aggro energy to both barbara and ben so it's it's not it's not purely uh, it's not purely Tony Todd's portrayal. There's, there's, it's there's something larger going on in Tom Savini's direction, or just like how the the people embody those characters. There's you just also cannot create recreate the juxtaposition between these the button down 1960s you know church, going to church on Sunday suit wearing motherfuckers that are getting eaten by zombies in in the 60s. As opposed to, you know, the reality of the 90s where things are just a little bit more... The, the lid is off of the jar already. So overall, particularly if for some reason you're in a category of uh, having listened to this whole segment and have not seen Candyman, um, it's an incredible movie. Do go and see it before you see this new version, because that's just how things work. Just go see the 1992 version. It's scary yeah. as hell. Um, even with all of the spoilers that we've added into this segment, it is absolutely frightening, um, and it is not—it's it, not a one-trick pony. It, it, it pulls—it pulls out anxiety in in all sorts of confusing and surprising ways. It's—it's a, it's a really strongly made film. Tony Todd is amazing. Virginia Madsen is very good. The bees are upsetting. Yeah, it's—it's uh, a—it's a—it's a, it's a good damn movie. Even though it, it there's a there's a major aspect of, um, of, of white tourism in the, 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 uh, the way that the lens handles the story, you know, at all. But yeah. even considering that, I think there's a, a major, there are many major reasons why it is still so culturally relevant and it's scary as fuck. So if something can be good from the nineties, this is you know absolutely probably top 10 scary movies from the nineties. Um, if not like in total it's very very well made very upsetting very visually compelling Tony Todd's awesome go, go yeah. watch it how do we rank um, Candyman in terms of being bitchin van art welcome to bitchin van art bitchin van Saul art Monsters. <laughs> does, does Tony Todd's t- Candyman make scary van art I think so I think it's scary as fuck uh, you Google, be, if you Google be can- next to the phantasm he would he mm. would be part of a group you don't think he'd get to star on his own van art? No. I mean, if it were huh. up to me and somebody told me to do that, I would do it. But if 
if like a van existed. You think in terms just, of you think in terms of how he ranks culturally, he's, he doesn't have enough cred to get to have his own well, like side of a van. Yeah, he's always like next to second string horror guys like Phantasm huh. and, and Leatherface. Huh. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, that would not have occurred to me. I um yeah. I mean, um, I think he's a visually compelling enough character, and with the bees motif, I think you can do a lot with the bees. Yeah, you could do tons with the bees. I maybe you do one side Candyman, one side Nicolas Cage, and uh, <laughs> shitty Wicker Man. Yeah. Um, and you just you get a vanity plate that says "Not the Bees." Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's it's giving it's giving Nicolas Cage too much power for making a, a bad a bad movie out of a out of a turning a, ba- a a great movie into a terrible movie. Yeah. But um, um, cool. If uh, if if Candyman was a was a D and D monster, what kind of D and D monster would he be? Man, there's so many uh, that he could be. Like he because could, he could reasonably be a demi lich. He could, <laughs> huh? He well, could, I think he's got to be something that I think he's got to be something that's ghostly or incorporeal. Like I think a, if you make him a, a, a geist, yeah, or something kind of in this in a specter category that yeah. that can that can some because a specter or something in the greater ghost category can manifest physically with with effort, kind of you know like Patrick's. Yeah, Patrick Swayze style, but like <laughs> is not a physical body and can exist over time. Yeah, I don't know. We're gonna have to, we're gonna we have to get a project to like stat out um, Freddy Krueger and Candyman and some of these other characters as as D and D five E entities. Yeah. <laughs> put somebody put somebody on that. Now that we've escaped our first menace, dear readers, we invite you into the apothecary, that den of rare and obscure balms, salves, powders, and oils derived from the exotic serpents, clattering critters, and acrid arachnids, where we do our most shadowy machinations. Our friend Jeremy keeps dying in the dark putrid dungeons one player character after the next, like moths to the flame, whether it's crushed by a cyclops, didn't get his mage armor up in time, or was incinerated by his own divine light, Jeremy finds a way for his piss wizard to perish in the first round of combat. So here we are to ask you to open your coin purses, help pitch in just a bit to defray the massive cost of all these dang healing potions we need to keep Jeremy crawling through the dungeons. If you want to support the show on an ongoing basis, you can check us out at patreon.com slash oopsallmonsters. That's oops with two O's. Or you can make a one-time contribution to the Apothecary's Health Potions for Jeremy Fund, which at most levels will get you a shout-out at the top of the show, if you're into that. If you're not, we can give you a sweet and scary pseudonym to keep your dark business under wraps. So you can toss a coin to us at paypal.me slash Oops all monsters. Again, that's paypal.me slash oops all monsters. And in every case, oops is with two O's and no punctuation, just like Tiamat intended. Hi there. My name is Douglas Rassensberger, and I'm a CEO and founder of Douglas's Cutlasses. Have you ever found yourself in this situation? You've just gotten home from a long day of spurring growth at your small but thriving business. You're just trying to slice some quality deli meats and cheeses for a relaxing snack 
and suddenly there's a mysterious intruder rummaging through your garbage outside. What's a domestic disruptor to do when you get in a pickle like this? Pull out your handy-dandy, short-handled, half-guarded naval sword, that's what. Here at Douglas and Colors, we've got every possible colors for every conceivable scenario. Are you an aspiring or current CEO of a Fortune 500 company? I've got a colors for that. A middle school teacher struggling to maintain discipline in the classroom? I've got a colors for that. Looking to add a little flair to drab dinner parties? I've got a colors for that. Some people say to me, but Douglas, I'm not a pirate, privateer, or sailor. What do I need with a battle-quality 27-inch half-guard naval sword? I'm so glad you asked. Here at Douglas's Cutlasses, our research shows that the vast majority of conflicts, both business and personal, can be positively affected by the introduction of a modest, well-crafted naval sword. So let's get swashbuckling. No matter what's your problem, an easy-to-wield iron forged cutlass is probably the solution. So once again, I'm Douglas Raffles Murr of Douglas's Cutlasses. Come get stabby with me. Please go to paypal.me slash oopsallbonsters and make a payment there. And that's oops with two O's. Again, that link is paypal.me slash oopsallbonsters. Imagine there that you have just bought your new house in a New Jersey suburb that's in the middle of a much-needed overhaul. And your neighbor seems nice, even though you've only spoke to him briefly, and he told the, and he told you, you know, you do you, have fun with that house. Uh, the first night, you hear moaning demands from the basement, skittering footsteps from the attic, scratching on the walls, and a voice that won't shut up about sandwiches. So you investigate further the next day to find that the previous occupants were a crime-fighting private detective force and your new neighbor might not be as nice as you thought. Uh, you had to get all this information from the landlord. The landlord is a tall and ancient-looking man with an Eastern European imitation accent. He's got long hair and there isn't much else to his appearance. And he tells you that you should eat the sandwich and give the moaning mummy in the basement everything that he wants. Now you give me a bear and a woman. Try to get along with the onion monster that's in the attic, whose name is Willie Nelson. What kind of monster are you? Which is a coincidence. If you don't recognize it, then you should be spanked with moon rocks. They're from the moon. Because I'm doing, oops, all of the monsters from Aqua Teen Hunger Force. <laughs> <laughs> all of them all I'm of them i'm so afraid if <laughs> i give that water about work out meet what if we do just one of them that won't make any sense help me help me scope so, this down into a thing that i can imagine is a thing that we can consume how, how are we gonna how are you going to yeah. break down all of the monsters from Aqua Teen Hunger, Hunger Force. Uh, well, the f the first one was a, a robot, so I don't know if we can count that. But then there was Moth Monster Man, who was John Benjamin. In fact, it was John Benjamin. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh -huh. But basically, there's there's the the mummy, the South Bronx parasite, Ultra Mega Chicken, um, Hand Banana, okay. Willie Nelson, the onion that lives upstairs. The Sirens, uh, Spaghetti, the dog that they create, Drew Baca, the brownie okay. monsters, Balloon and Stein, <laughs> the Mind Mosquito. Okay. 
Okay. Okay. So let me let me all right, let me pause you right there cuz I think I think what I'm getting is that you have that you have dis- conceptually distilled this category into a knowable uh, entity in the sense that they have something in common and can be talked about yeah. like en masse that they're, they're, instead of describing yeah, the, well, a, a hundred disparate unrelated monsters they're, they're oh yeah they're, yeah they're I'm just going to talk about how Matt how Matt Malero and Dave Willis uh, uh, just create nonsense a lot of the monsters are just repeat personalities of of previous monsters right, right. that like <laughs> absolutely where the depiction of the monster visually is really the only difference I'm a giant spider wearing a disposable diaper I'm insane man I'm Randy the astonishing Hog mommy curse Hey I'm happy time Harry I'm Gaggle Belly the WWYZZERD D. What's up, fellas? Tell him who you are, Ramulex. You listen directly to me, for I am the ghost of Christmas past. Yeah, it's that that happens so often. I've I've seen a bit of I you know I watched a lot of Aqua Teen right in the in the old in the olden Goldie days. I, I yeah, we're we're gonna stick with a lot of olden days. I used to have a bitch and Carl impression that I, um, I don't know if I have the I don't know if I have the pipes for right at this moment. I the thing the thing that you would say in his pool. I, I mean, I can do meat water all day. We got um, the fry man up, but yeah, <laughs> still waters run deep. No, I can't. I gotta. I gotta. I gotta. I, yeah, I gotta still, still waters ah, run deep. St- <laughs> you gotta, yeah. You really gotta get into Carl. <laughs> I used to have a really good Carl. I'm, my, I'm off of it right now. I can't. I should have kept that story to myself. The first sign that this show was gonna be about nothing was whenever the, the, uh, well, the first episode was a big hint, but the second one with Moth Monster <laughs> Man, uh-huh. where, um, <laughs> where, um, it was apparent that they are not a superhero force at all, right? Because they. Instead of investigating Moth Monster Man, who was parked outside their house in their driveway, they went to Tennessee to Dracula's grave. Uh, um, uh-huh. <laughs> like you do. <laughs> to, to, to show Shake that it can't be Dracula because I think it was Tennessee. It might have been Kentucky. Yeah, Moth Monster Man lost his patience, came out of the bus that he was waiting in and just kind of moved in. And okay. uh, put his eggs inside of Carl, and instead of like fighting the Moth Monster or resolving any type of Moth Monster thing, the show just suddenly ends when it still kind of had a plot line in, in the second episode before it was literally 15 second skits of randomness. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever it had like a full follow through story, the brownie monsters exploded out of the bedroom and ended the episode. Uh, no conclusion, and then the next episode it picks right back up. Like, that didn't happen, which I thought was hilarious. as a great formula for what it was. Most of the first season just featured a new monster that they didn't fight uh, as, as a backdrop for extra jokes, reference jokes. Basically just a, just a plot point for a room full of <laughs> intelligent and esoteric weirdos to make their own inside jokes. Uh, in a in a um, uh, improvised setting, 
and and it's and it worked and somebody animated all of this the finished product was aqua teen hunger force right the cartoon that um, made adult swim which wasn't space ghost surprisingly right. it was aqua teen that made put adult swim on the map the the premise of it was whatever loose background story that there was it was that they were uh, created by science as an a- advertising project to um, for an unnamed fast food company. Oh, okay. They were created by Dr. Weird. That that keeps being hinted that they were created by the mad scientist that introduces all of the monsters in the yes, first season was the, um, at the beginning. The, yeah. the, the New Jersey the, mad scientist <laughs> in the beginning of the show. Yeah, the, the dome-headed nipple robe scientist. Yes. <laughs> Uh, concept for their origin kind of picked up where Space Ghost left off because they came from a Space Ghost episode uh, where oh, really? where that origin story was still the same. Yeah! Um, the, in the Space Ghost episode where they debuted, uh, it was a milkshake and a box of fries and Meatwad was unchanged, but Master Shake and Frylock huh. looked completely different and they had the voices right. of Enignoc and Ur. It's never explained why Moth Monster Man was created by Dr. Weird, but it's uh, like a lot of self-references that shows that there's an onion monster that lives in the attic named Willie Nelson. And there, <laughs> there's, there's um, hints. Sometimes you'll see him in the window. Sometimes he'll be around, like, checking the mail. He was, he's been in eight episodes. The scary thing about uh, the onion monster was that he kept offering people juice... People kept uh, ignoring his his offers for juice, thinking that it was a normal thing that he was just offering juice. But it, juice was blood, and he tore the arms off of Carl and yelled "juice" at the end of the episode. Remind me about MCP MC- pants because it really r- it rings a bell, but for some reason it's not like uh, it's not jogging. Really? Mind. Okay, MCP pants I, I, is um, voiced by Chris Ward, who was otherwise known as MC Chris, the, uh, oh, the nerd yes. rapper. He was. Hash wants some sex. Yeah, Hash wants some sex. But he was, um... He, he played this monster who convinced uh-huh. uh, the youth of New Jersey to eat a bunch of candy with his rap song, I Want Candy. And his plan was to capture all of these people, uh-huh. uh, lure them to his warehouse, and attach them to a drill and their hyperactivity from the sugar rush of eating all this candy would power a drill to hell so that MCP pants could do something with Satan. Yeah, I wrote that. It's called, I Want to Rock Your Body. Frylock and the Aqua Teens end up just killing MCP pants instead of dealing with him. And so he does end up in hell and Satan continues to turn him into different monsters and send him to the surface to be killed again as torture for whatever MCP pants did, which I can only okay. assume is just being annoying. I mean, <laughs> yeah, arg- arguably killing somebody is a method of dealing. Yeah, with them, true. But, you know, it just depends <laughs> on. And I, I would be. Um, I think we would be uh, bereft of. Um, we wouldn't be doing our job if we did not indicate that. MCP pants ironically ends up being a giant monstrous spider in a diaper. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> visually, yeah. it's extremely extremely confusing and upsetting. Yeah, it's <laughs> There's also Enignoct and Ur, uh-huh. which are the Moonanites. They're from the moon. Uh-huh. Oh, and yes. The uh, 
the... I'm doing it as hard as yeah, I can. <laughs> apparently, whenever you're from the moon, the, the intelligent race that dominates the surface of the moon is um, Atari-quality, like, 8-bit, not even 8-bits, um, just uh, pigment mm-hmm. sprites. Something yeah. that you're going to have to see for yourself if you've never seen it, which is strange if you haven't. Um, or at least heard of it. I mean, how, how many people do you think have heard of Aqua Teen Hunger Force? I have to say that I'm really bad at judging these things. Cause yeah. Will, there are things that I will, um, you know, like, ask eighth graders about. And I'm like, you guys know about this. And I'm like, we're, we're getting to the point where they don't even know about, like, um, Harry Potter. A lot of them are oh, like, man. shit. Well, that was, that, that was like my pull to, like, Hess is a teacher, by the way. Nothing. He's not just asking eighth graders things on the street. <laughs> yeah, have, if I was doing man on the street interviews, it would not be with fifteen-year-olds. Um, I assure you. Yeah, that. But that is something I'd like to know. So, listeners, let us know if you have heard of Aqua Teen Hunger Force and how old you are, because <laughs> because I want an accurate poll on this. So uh, let me let me ask you this: within the context of uh, Aqua Teen Hunger Force monsters. Do, how, where do you count um, Glenn Danzig? Glenn Danzig as a monster? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's, he's like a... He's, he's certainly a villain in one episode. Yeah, he is... <laughs> I would count Glenn Danzig as... Um, let's see. There, there is a specific type of monster later on that are um, prospect tenants of their house. And Glenn right. Danzig really fits in that category since he... He yeah. almost moved yeah. into the house. And yeah, he installs installs uh, elf blood sprinklers. Elf blood sprinklers, yeah, which which go great with the rituals. Well, let me ask you this: Is there any? Do you make any through line observations about the the overall category of Aquatine monsters? Like, what is the what is the what is the overarching thought that makes you? What do they have in common? Um. Well, a lot of them. Uh, a, a lot of their designs were going to be Hanna-Barbera inspired since uh, William Street has access to right. Cartoon Network, which owns the rights to all of the Hanna-Barbera cartoons. Right. Um, but whenever they tried to like shape them in their own way or give them personalities or new voices, it, it was just kind of like ending up like C-Lab, which has already right. done C-Lab. So they created their own monsters... Um, mostly throughout season one and kind of stuck with that. But I think that they uh, kept yeah. tr- like like trying to make a Hanna-Barbera character into something funnier, but eventually just ended up with m- making their own new character. So Aqua Teen Hunger Force, uh, for their villains and monsters, has like a 100% originality to it. Um, yeah, I don't... I don't... I never... Like, watching... Aquatine or any of the kind of related shows, I don't. It there's very very little um, space ghost flavor that ever comes off of it to me. Yeah, you know, only only maybe in the stilted nature of the kind of like two D characters whose cells don't really animate that much. Yeah, and who just kind of like stand there like mouthing off to each other. Like there's only that very bedrock element to me stands out as it being in any way related to like Space Ghost. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's mostly because um, George Lowe, the guy that plays Space Ghost, I think pretty much headed up the the improvised comedy for that show in the in the uh, writers' room, and he wasn't there for Aqua Teen. He was there for a couple of episodes, but he wasn't the main character. Like the main character was like pretty much Dana Snyder. And um, the guy, shit, the guy that did Meatwad, I saw like footage of him in the uh, in the sound booth, and he rattled off like twenty jokes a second for five minutes straight, alternating voices like on the spot, going like from this to this here, to, to this, uh-huh. and so for yeah. for at least like twenty minutes, tw- like twenty to forty minutes of this, and the the entire. Uh, production team on the other side of the glass wall for the sound booth was just in tears because he had him <laughs> cracking up and he just like fed off that so he kept going to like uh-huh. get get these guys <laughs> in like this seemingly professional environment <laughs> to, like to try to get yeah. the staff to crack up as much as, much as they can um, Dave Willis is the guy and then in parentheses, it says, do the break of dawn. That's beautiful. It's like poetry. Before I forget to mention it, I will say RIP to see Martin Croker uh, yeah. from the Space Ghost Coast to Coast, because I, I saw him um, at, a, at a different convention on a, on a panel, um, and, you know, he, th- he, threw, he threw in a little bit of, uh, Z- he threw in a little bit of Zorak yeah. um, for the crowd. Yeah. He he was definitely Paul Schaefer to George Lowe. I tuned in for Dragon Ball Z on a Sunday night. Uh, for some reason, I don't know why I watch that show. Honestly, because it's I'm okay. Gonna, I'm going to alienate a lot of people. But back in uh, 2001, whenever Dragon Ball Z was on Toonami, they showed the unabridged version, so that might explain something. And the unabridged Dragon Ball Zs were about 400 minutes of flying in the air and talking and being surprised at the bad guy before they fought anybody. So, I tuned in to see another uh-huh. episode of Goku talking about what he's looking at, and uh, Adult Swim came on, and it was like the first time that they were airing anything, and Aqua Teen Hunger Force had me laughing so hard and asking people if I could go swimming. It was like October. And for like the next week, I kept asking Uh everybody that I ran into, can I go swimming? Can I go swimming? Nobody knew what I was talking about. (laughs) And it took about a month. And after that month, (laughs) after that month, I started asking people, can I go swimming? Can I go swimming? And I had a couple people ask me, like, do you do that show? Do you do that late night show that's on that (laughs) channel? (laughs) Yeah, no, yeah, me, Gavin, and Morgantown, I definitely, yep, I'm the voice of that show. I'm Meatwad. Yeah, yeah, that's me. Like I've seen that. Is that your like public access show? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> no, that's Cartoon Network. But but thank you. <laughs> yep, same. Thing. Yeah, <laughs> you you put in like half a hot take about Dragon Ball Z. I will say that Dragon Ball Z is trash <laughs> because it, it makes no, it makes no sense. It's about nothing, and there are no stakes. Yeah. Um, no, I agree. I. <laughs> Like Dragon Ball Z is 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 it's it's like a it's like a Bruce Lee movie with no characters, yeah, <laughs> or like professional wrestling 
with no actual people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the one of the what the great things about like a Bruce Lee kung fu movie is that it's amazing that those people can do those things physically. Yeah. yeah. And, all. <laughs> and and that's also one of the amazing things about pro wrestling. And and otherwise you just have like you just have cotton candy um, nonsense masculine drama about talking about whose kung fu penis yeah. is bigger. And like, it turns out, it turns out since the last episode, my kung fu star penis got even bigger than yours. And everybody goes, oh. For a long time, look, they look go, oh. For like tw- 20 fucking minutes. And then, like, okay, well, after that guy shows off his like magic star kung fu penis, we go to the other character, and it turns out that his magic star. Star, star Kung Fu penis is even bigger than that guy's. So they're like, oh, yeah. shit. His can, turn, his can turn green and shoot fire. I'm like, oh, God. Well, next uh, on the ne- on next week's episode of, of, of Star Kung Fu Penis, like, I just, I, it was, uh, yeah, <laughs> Dragon Ball, I, I want to say Dragon Ball Z was one of the shows that was on in the morning when I was trying to get ready to go to class or school or a job or some shit and like how I got pulled into watching Power Rangers because it came on after Inspector Gadget I got pulled into watching Dragon Ball Z and my brain kept going like there's something compelling about this and I realized what it was the only thing that was compelling about it was how Piccolo looked and there was literally (laughs) nothing nothing else interesting at all about the show on any other level at any other time I didn't care whether Goku was brunette or blonde or shooting yellow fire or pink fire or whether his his balls sprayed candy rain it was all the same pointless garbage it was like now now this new now this new character has the bigger fatter rainbow balls i'm like why does anybody give a shit there's none of this means anything yeah I, there's, I, there's no there's no stakes i really know what you mean and i can't say that i disagree but i've had to like come to terms that Dragon Ball Z is well-liked by a lot of people that I don't want to be enemies with. It is culturally <laughs> extremely relevant for some fucking reason. For some reason. fucking reason, I know. <laughs> I, it, like, I, I, like, I, if you if you took a, a, a hundred <laughs> hermit crabs and threw them in threw them in a cage with 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 a hundred felt tip markers, they would accidentally write a story that was more interesting than twenty five seasons of Dragon Ball Z. There is there is. There's no plot. No one has a personality. <laughs> it's just a. It's just a. It's, they're just a series. There's just a. They're just a series of slightly annoyed dildos rubbing against each other, complaining about which dildo is the biggest and the shiniest. And then somebody else climbs onto the next biggest dildo. And they're like, aha! And the since the last commercial break, now I am the biggest dildo. It's just, ab- just absolutely fucking claptrap nonsense garbage. It makes no sense. <laughs> it's fucking worthless. <laughs> I, I... Yeah, well, you're not wrong. But, but, but Hess, tell us how you really feel. So, um, so anyway, Aqua Teen replaced Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Well, look. At least, uh, at least Aqua Teen has definable characters with actual characteristics that are maintained over time. They have predictable behavior, and you know, at least they they fucking shake the etch sketch halfway through every 15 minute episode. But still, I feel like I know what the fuck is going on some of the time. Yeah, it's a, yeah jokes. <laughs> yeah, that's that's. Right, per- characters, personality, and humor, or is like three things that, in my opinion, Dragon Ball Z has none of. Yeah, that's true. There's already th- already three for three things that do not exist in that show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Aqua Teen had a big part in shaping my adulthood. <laughs> okay, and tell us tell us more about uh, that. Well, how does that look? I I I would love to say that I was already telling jokes of that nature and of that caliber. Um. But it wasn't, it wasn't, like, Aqua Teen kind of brought it into uh, a way that the world could see value in in its type of humor, in its type of, like, non-sequitur, and also yeah, uh, yeah, generally yeah. There bizarre. Is a, there is a, um, yeah. there is a, an essential nonsensical absurdity to the character of the show that is different yeah. than a, a lot of, than almost anything else it's kind of like why yeah. give a shit because it's funny but not but for no other reason yeah after after that show came out whenever people um were constantly saying that humor was random but after after this show came out um a lot of normal people who called this humor and also me random all the time um kind of <laughs> random had, yes had, random yeah random you're so random i I'm so glad that that disappeared. Um, but anyway, it it uh, created, even though I hated how they said it, I don't mind being understood by normal people. That's pretty nice. And um, I think Aqua Teen had a, had a big step in that since they directly referenced the show whenever they were talking to me. Like, you're really funny. Do you like Aqua Teen Hunger Force? Like, yes, I do. If you had to put it 80-20, would you say that Aquatine gave 80% people a context by which to relate to your humor or that 80% you were able to articulate your style of humor to normal people because of Aquatine? Like where does the 80% lie if it's, you had to like place it on one side or the other? The 80% lies with people people understanding that it is a form of humor to begin with. Um, because yeah, they yeah, saw yeah. it on a cartoon show, and yeah, the that, cartoon that's show. That's what I was going to say, but I didn't want to put those words like into your mouth. Yeah, well, no, that's um, what I'm saying. Because yeah, I think as, I think as soon as they saw it on TV and that it was a cartoon show, it, they immediately think like, um, "Isn't that great? This is acceptable because television is is how I make myself yeah. laugh." And <laughs> And then later, and then later, people that hated me for all the jokes that I tell and all the non-seriousness that I had in my youth—I I seem to be serious recently—but um, all all of that <laughs> crazy banana shit that I did in my early twenties, people began to become appealed to it, and and in fact, in conversation, referenced the show, saying things like, "You could write for that show." I was like, yes, I certainly could. I'm trying to orient myself around what direction, what direction to approach this concept from, because I think that you're, I think that you're exactly right, and 
because the phenomenon that you experienced of being able to having something from culture like a like a ridiculous dumb show from from the Cartoon Network yeah. recontextualize your whole approach to how you come across to people, how you're perceived by people to like give them a shortcut to the way that you are, like whether it's you, you know, the proverbial you, not necessarily you, yeah, Gavin, but I, I know anybody, what you mean. but also you, Gavin, the individual, like there, there absolutely is something to that. And I think additionally, there are certain kind of personalities because I don't think everybody does this in the sense that I don't think everybody, I don't think every brain um, is able to get to get to adulthood and then suddenly find a different um, something in culture that is a shortcut to the way that. Um, something that depicts how their brain works or how they communicate with people that is um, vastly better than everything that has shown up beforehand. And <laughs> you and I are, are probably doing this show that we're currently recording because we are both brains that have, for various reasons, used popular culture as a shortcut to understand other people and reality and contextualize ourselves in both dealing with other people and reality. And I don't think, quote unquote, normal people have to do that. <laughs> and um, that is uh, a, probably a privilege and a failure for normal people. Now that I'm at a point where I'm like pr prejudiced more toward myself in a way that I feel kind of comfortable about, not just like arrogantly defensive, but I'm like, no, I'm pretty cool being me. And it's not just, a, it's not just a, an overarching defensive maneuver that I do out of like knee jerk instinct for, for like, you know, psychological survival, but it's, 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 it's a real like actual, uh, you know, way that I feel confident of relating to the world. Like, no, it's good. To, it's it's good to be me the way that I am, and it's weird in these following seventeen ways, right? And I think yeah. the, the, I think that uh, the, the 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 purplest part of the Venn diagram is that most people, quote unquote, normal people, do not f access, you know, a lot of their reality via. Hudson and Hicks and Ripley and Vasquez yeah. per se. It's, it's not a, it's not a left turn that most people have to make cause they just be people. Yeah. And that's really great for them, probably. Yeah. Um, it sounds really convenient and low effort and uh, and fun, you know, really footloose and fancy free. Whereas I think um, some of us who live in that purple part of whatever that Venn diagram is are uh, forced to... Uh, without uh, being aware of th this forcing to kind of access boundaries for behavior and boundaries for normalcy and boundaries for like 
what is and is not a good idea through cultural um, columns and touchstones. And it's one of the jobs that, that culture and pop culture uh, does helps helps everybody with that you know one of pop culture's main jobs is to have something that everybody in the world can relate to that you that you can that you can go to the the water cooler and talk about the the episode of mad men or talk about the watergate scandal or you know or talk about fucking civil rights or talk about goddamn aquatine if you want and have something some kind of shortcut to understand other minds and the problem of, of believing in them and, and, and ever relating to anybody in your whole goddamn fucking life. That having a touchstone, whether it's Aquatine or aliens or whatever, that you can go like, hey, by the way, if you get this pretty well, you get me a little bit, I, 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 I you know, that might... Some people would describe that as a symptom of our um, kind of panopticon, nightmare, nichified, millennial landscape reality. And some people would say, no, that's a good thing. It's something that we've needed for a long time. And it's actually doing, it's actually helping us all relate. Like, I, I understand something about Jordan Peele because he, he understands something about Tony Todd and Candyman. And I I've, may never meet Jordan Peele, but on some level we're holding onto the same part of the elephant, uh, the elephant of culture as, as the various blind, man's, blind men standing around it, right? Um, and uh, I might have to cut out all of this uh, philosophical tangent. No, out of do the show. not. In I, fact, leave point, it I, in because that's <laughs> no. This is the direction I wanted to go to. Like, I it, this was more about it's like taking another uh, angle at the entire show, uh, not just monsters. Okay. So, like this, this is all perfect. <laughs> yeah, I'm not able to contextualize my own ranting in real time. No, that's uh, that's ex- no, I, exactly the uh, the point that I wanted to make. I have a couple of notes here that kind of hint towards that was the point I wanted to make, but it, I could not make it sound like that. I would have said something along the lines <laughs> like, all the movies and stuff that are funny that I have funny also is so funny that people are funny. And so I'm glad that you put it that way because it's... Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. like I, I may have incidentally just hit one or two actual points, so in the danger of trying to hit a second or third point... Um, Humor is is maybe the most powerful humor and horror, comedy and horror are probably the most powerful cultural columns to yeah, absolutely to to, to, to access with other people because they 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 access the most rudimentary part of our lizard minds yeah. is to what is what is unreal and is absurd and also what is what is possible and what is dangerous. Yeah. And and those two categories, they seem sometimes they're they're you know they don't they don't win Oscars because they're not they're they're not sad people emoting necessarily, but they they are 
all they are ultimate in their like cultural relevance because everybody wants to people want to a- access those <laughs> people want to access those because they have the most relatable meaning to to people in their actual experience like what is dangerous what can actually happen to me what is the worst case scenario and what is the most what is the most embarrassing what is the most disgusting thing that can happen what is the most shameful thing that could happen to me you know both comedy and horror they go out of the edge and say they dealt they deal with the worst case scenario in in different areas yeah um like shame and embarrassment and disgust and fluids and bodies and sex and all that shit and so they don't so they so they don't win Oscars because people want to don't want to deal in that mud, yeah. um, but they're in my opinion a lot more relevant to the way that your brain acts, actually has to deal with shit. So um, I'm I'm always going to be with comedy and with horror above. Uh, you know I love what's he eating Gilbert Grape as much as the next guy, but it's <laughs> I, I comedy and horror is, is is where it's at for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, no. Cool. I, so I don't want to steal. I, I, I'm curious what else you have. Yeah, no, I was just going to expand what, what's on that. Occur, like, what's occurring to you right now? I, I figured out a long time ago that people laugh at something as an instinct. As It's mostly <clears throat> to, to try to uh, cope with something that they don't understand or something that they do understand but that is bizarre and takes them from what is comfortable or normal. And um, that's what I base like a lot of uh my behavior on because i want people to have that reaction it might be defensive because i don't want people to know the real me the real me is an awful ocean of evil but um (laughs) 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 so (laughs) so i use that formula for humor to to uh, possibly as a defense mechanism to to apply to them i'm keeping them safe by being so damn funny and um, <laughs> and so I, I did that a lot. In in that in that sense, like horror and comedy are are pretty closely related. And um, I don't think you could have one without the other. I don't I don't think it it's tragedy and comedy. I really do think it's horror and comedy, because um, right right because the, ultimately the things that are the end point in tragedy, they're not like you know, like your mom moving to another state. There's somebody yeah. being thrown into a fucking volcano. They're yeah. like, a ch- they're like a, ch- they're, they're, a, they're a child being eaten by a goblin. You know, tragedy, tragedy doesn't stop at inconvenience. Tragedy stops at fucking dismemberment and destruction. Yeah. It, there, it, it stops at horror. It doesn't, it doesn't stop, stop at soap opera. Yeah. Um, and, um, with that, that's why I think Aqua Teen Hunger Force was uh, such a landmark in entertainment because it brought. <laughs> so, I know. <laughs> because it brought. Um, I'm not the laughing because I don't mind. Because I think you're full of shit. And um, normalized some of the humor that I practice as like a, a valid form of communication. I think there's a ge- I think there's a generational thing that is. Um, that is exemplified by the Cartoon Network's rise in the late 90s and the early aughts, which is a uh, a maximal version of absurdity, yeah. 
which is a which is a wave that rose and already crested and has crashed. Yes, definitely. And the, it, it 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 happened in time, and we're we're past it. And it was and it's not coincidental that it happened in time for us. In, the, in a way that we were able to consume it year after year as cons, as consumers of it as the as the the either the oldest millennials or the 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 babyest Gen Xers and and having to to swim in this world of maximum irony yeah and the and the 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 waters of maximum irony are um, absurd dangerous and confusing in terms of symbols and meaning yeah because y- yeah. you have to be suspicious of of every idea because every single idea may be uh, a friend that you come across in the jungle or in the water and you you go to help them and you turn them over and they have no fucking legs because they've been blown apart. Yeah. And that's what that's what the that's what the the forest or the ocean of irony is is you you're expecting something beloved and standard and normal and then you get the hyena laugh uh, evil version caricature demonic like yeah. angle of it where you're like, ah, oh, fuck, this was the opposite of what I expected <laughs> my, you know, it's it, the, the author is fucking with me and I never should have trusted them in the first place. I should have come into this with, uh, you know, with, a with, with salt is it, it and tongue in my cheek. And I, I have to have my guard up at all times. And, and that like th- eventually like the, Iteration after iteration after iteration of that is what you land on is Space Ghost Coast to Coast and Sea <laughs> yeah. Croaker and 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 Aqua Teen Hunger Force, which is nothing has meaning. Every every everything can be everything can be destroyed. Yeah. Um, Carl said you know, it, it don't like, matter. This don't matter. None of this matters. <laughs> yeah. It, everything just becomes like <laughs> a sh- a shrimp and white wine LSD nightmare. Yeah. And yeah. uh, on that note, this is brought to you by to fucking to Raid Shadow Legends. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> For, so anyway, I think we, I think we burned. Yeah, I we we bur- we burned a lot of tape. Do you have any? Um, do we have any closing thoughts related to this subject? Because I'm already going to have an absolute waking nightmare editing this episode into a thing that anybody <laughs> can listen to. No, this will be a good one. I'm sure it'll be a good one. No, it's got stuff in it. That's not yeah. a, you know, it's, there's, there's, there's cheese in this Rangoon. So if, um, if, but if like, the, any Aqua Teen Hunger Force monster was in D&D, that's whenever you put the books down because you got too drunk to play. <laughs> it's whenever you planned on drinking a few beers in Dungeons and Dragons and you overdid it and you gotta pass out. Truly, they were an Aqua Teen Hunger Force. And now for a segment we're calling Describing Nick Cave, where we talk about a particular photo of musician, songwriter, Renaissance man and all-around weird dude, Nick Cave. Well, I mean, upon first viewing um, this this exact picture of Nick Cave, is the the the, the uh, initial impression that I get is 
um, driver's license photo. He, he does not. He does not give the give me the impression of somebody that wants to be uh, photographed in this exact moment. He's giving off big no thank you vibes. Yeah, he is. He knows. <laughs> He knows, I I do think that he is saying, like, I'm aware of my t-shirt. I know what this statement is. And if if you your, think, do you th- <laughs> and yeah, if do you your he, reaction is inappropriate, it won't matter to me. Do you <laughs> think he got this large t-shirt for this case? Or do you think he had, like, his, uh, like his assistant make this t-shirt for him out of iron-on letters? Oh, I don't know. Um, ooh. In, what was it, like, 99? Yeah. I don't think that you could. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Those, yeah. Iron on letters have been he, a thing he, since like the seventies. He might have like seen it in a thrift store or something and bought it. Um, I don't know. It's hard to tell. He is an artist and creates things. Yeah. He might have created his own shirt. If you're Nick, yeah. If you're Nick Cave and you don't spend at least twenty hours in thrift stores a week, I don't know what the fuck you're doing with your life. Like collecting yeah. Star Wars miniatures. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't know what your time is used for. Um, yeah, when you're not when you're not directing and writing things. And he he acquired the shirt, and I don't think he thinks too much about it. But he does. He is aware of it. And he does know how how great it is, and he he like like what you said. Um, I can't tell whether he's twenty five or fifty in this photo, and yeah, I'm I'm, I'm not I'm not gonna look it up because it looks yeah, like it, we, he either he looks like a twenty five year old IT manager or a uh, uh, a fifty year old demon. I, I there yeah. I don't there's. there's <laughs> He He's, seems um, to travel through time in a way that I don't understand. Yeah, me neither. Because the a lot of pictures that that'll have on stage from like 1996 look like how he looks right now, and a lot uh-huh. of pictures how he looks right now looks like how he looks like from like the 70s, and it's <laughs> and it's like you you can tell which one is which because he has um, uh, recognizable age. I don't know, like marks, like like. Yeah, now his, I mean now some of his hair is thinning in the front, and he's got yeah, he's got wrinkles around his more, mouth and more and wrinkles. Feet. But, but but like sometimes whenever he's just screaming, his face looks like that anyway. Like it's all wrinkled yeah. up and his hair's disheveled anyway. Yeah. And I can't tell if the photograph is from 1989 or 2009. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I I did I did not come here with this segment to harsh on Nick Cave for b- being a mortal human being that gets old no. and has skin. Not um, at all. But Nick Cave is such a powerful being that, like I said, all opinions will eventually surface if you look at it enough. And none of this yes. was set out to be negative. <laughs> no, he's he's right. I mean, I'm 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 zoomed in on his face, and he's looking at me with the intensity of the person who is the Laura Palmer's actual murderer. And, yeah. Uh, and yeah, uh, I would call that an accusation. <laughs> But instead, it feels more like um, the truth? Question mark. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I, 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 I can only conf- I can only confess to what I see in front of me. I don't know. Yeah. Um, David Lynch, get in contact with us. If, if you. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, that in in like ninety nine, it might have been his his drug period, and we can yeah maybe revisit that. I, I'm not, yeah, because I'm not there gonna, is that I, there is that like. <laughs> ultimate reality that you get whenever you're in and out of drugs that yeah. 
whenever you're like either coming down or ju you just do enough drugs to like kind of be okay that you perceive everything that's going on and way better than like anybody else and it's yes and it's a bizarre feeling and it's a, a <laughs> frustrating access to pure reality that sober people can never achieve yeah um <laughs> I'll, I'll also looking at this it, it, because of the um, this kind of like shimmery 1960s backdrop behind him. Yeah, um, it, it almost feels like he's getting he's like being like documented to possibly have like a starring role in a John Waters movie. <laughs> like like the other like the person on the other end is John Waters with a Polaroid. Like okay, turn yeah. to the right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and it it just that project just didn't didn't end up coming through. Um, that, he does look like he's kind of showing off. <laughs> like he's, uh, he's I mean, it's a very specific version of showing stance. off. Like, look how yeah. hilarious my t-shirt is. Yeah, <laughs> like, I I love how my t-shirt says this. Do you like it? And yeah. Here I am. Take my picture for the for the driver's license. <laughs> yes, this is my this is my Americans this is my Americans driver's license. Will I know how to drive on the right side? Oh yes, I will because that is also what we do in the Australia. Yeah, <laughs> this is how we speak in the Australia. This is how we speak in the Australia. Really, um, in the the realm of all possibility. <laughs> yes, uh, where all of our brains are made of piles of crab. The Pangea. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, I think it's all. I think it's all the juice that I have for for second Nick Cave. Second Nick um, Cave. That was a. That, I like that. Yeah. Well, we, we, we love Nick okay. Caves, but yeah. If if I'll, I'll say it again. If you want to find out who killed Laura Palmer, look up this photograph. <laughs> And that brings us to the end of our time with you, dear reader. Until next time, we deliver you another batch of beasts, bullywugs, and bowls of flesh-eating dessert fluff. If you have a suggestion or favorite monster you would like to hear us cover, uh, send them to oopsallmonsters at gmail.com. That's oops with two O's and no punctuation. Also, if you have any interesting tabletop stories, we would love to hear them. So tell us about your most gruesome monster encounters and give us permission to tell the story at oopsallmonsters at gmail.com. That's oops with two O's, no punctuation. At gmail.com. Share an episode on your favorite social media. We've got links on our Instagram each episode with the pictures of these monsters that we're discussing as we make the show. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's time to reach into your hearts, reach into your wallets. Brought to you by fucking NordVPN. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> if, if if that line reading doesn't get us an ad by NordVPN, I don't know what does. Brought to you by motherfucking NordVPN. Hide your shit. <laughs> 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 NordVPN. They don't gotta know. Yeah, NordVPN. Nord NordVPN. Fuck the NSA. Fuck the NSA. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, shit. Uh, All right, that's um, making it into the show. Well, yeah, we're. <laughs> I'm going to go pee real quick. <laughs> do the show. It's right here. Why not do the show? <laughs>